0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. We have a special guest this week, and that's Cameron Dutro. Cameron, do you want to just remind people who you are?
1: Sure, yeah. I'm Cameron Dutro. I work at GitHub, and I am here to talk about a deployment solution that I wrote called Kubi.
0: So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Now, Kubi, just doing a little bit of homework here, It does Docker Kubernetes uh, magic. And yeah, you know, my, my DevOps skills used to be current, and then they invented all this container stuff. So... <laughs> Right. Yeah. I'm kind of liking the idea of a Kubi, right? Do you want to give people kind of the elevator pitch, you know, what it is, what it's for, who it's designed uh, for people to use, stuff like that? Yeah, for sure.
1: And yeah, first of all, well, thanks for having me on Kubi and, and deployment and something and, and stuff like that is really near and dear to my heart. And the actual, the, the story behind Kubi actually starts with an episode of the Ruby Rhodes podcast. Um, I, <laughs> I know it's kind of coming full circle. So let's see, I think it's, I'm going to have to look this up, but it's episode 300-something of the of the podcast. Stefan Ventermeyer came on and talked about why, or sort of one of the problems or the holes that he sees in Rails, which is that there's no active deployment for Rails apps. And so um, what he meant by that was, you know, we have all these other great frameworks in Rails for interacting with the database. We have active record for that and active storage for, uh, for storing files in the cloud, you know. Uh-huh. Um, Action text, all these other cool frameworks, but we don't have anything for deployment, and that's kind of funny because like that's one of the big like things that you want to do with your app once you're finished building it. You want to put it online somewhere, and there's not really a set solution out of the box that Rails has for that. And so on the podcast, Stefan was saying like I don't really know if that needs to be a tool or if it just needs to be an official Rails guide or or what, but it would be nice to have some official guidance in that regard. So I heard that that episode and. Thought that he was totally right, and I, I didn't really understand why there wasn't a, sort of a blessed path for that for Rails. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I didn't think that it was going to be me that was going to work on that because mm-hmm. you know my, like you mentioned, Chuck, my my DevOps skills were like not not fantastic, and it wasn't something that I really had specialized in as in my career. So I was like, well, maybe maybe one day, you know, <laughs> maybe Stefan himself will do this. Maybe somebody else will step up and you know build a deployment solution for Rails that that is right. kind of the de facto. But uh, you know, in the inter- inter- intervening years, like nobody really did that, and so kept that in the back of my mind. And then a couple of years later, my, the company I worked for at the time, Lumos Labs, started to use and, and adopt Kubernetes to deploy uh, lumosity.com, the the big monolith that we had for Lumasi.com. Mm-hmm. And we used initially we used Docker and ECS for that, the Elastic Container Service, just like Amazon's right. sort of um, precursor to Kubernetes. And uh, ECS is fine. It's kind of, kind of bare bones. It's Everything runs in containers, but it's not particularly easy to use their interface. And, you know, it, it really just runs containers. It doesn't do anything else besides that. So no databases, no Redis, for example. You'd have to set all that stuff up yourself manually. So we used that for a long time and then uh, hired somebody who actually had much more experience with Kubernetes. And he started to convert all of us over to, to using Kubernetes and, and also, you know, the we, we also adopted a deployment, um, web app called, um, Samson by, uh, by Zendesk and started to sort of deploy everything with that setup. And, you know, it, there was a moment for me where I just, I remember sort of watching over his shoulder and, uh, we were deploying the Masi.com for kind of the first time and watching the, the output scroll by and, and watching the output from kube control, seeing everything sort of being stood up automatically. And it was just it was one of those moments that you have sometimes in tech where you're just like super blown away by how just, you know, magical the, the tool is. I'll never forget how amazed I was that it was doing all these things automatically when you just would configure what you wanted the tool to do, and then it would go do it and make sure your app was running and all the other important parts to make sure your app stays up, you know, so I mentioned that we had background jobs, I think, or most, most apps do, and so it would start up the background job processor and Connect to a Redis, and you know all that stuff just kind of happened automatically. There was no intervention necessary, and so that was a real light bulb moment. And so when that when that happened, I thought, why don't we do this? Why why, don't, why doesn't Rails have something like this that runs on Kubernetes that, that anybody could take advantage of? And so that's how how Kube was born. So to, you had asked what Kubi is. I just gave sort of background. Uh, Kubi mm-hmm. is as de- a deployment tool. I want it to be active deployment for Rails. It's written to be very simple, minimal configuration. I think the, the tagline for a long time was, you know, d- deploy your app with almost, you know, use Kubernetes with almost no configuration because Kubernetes is kind of known for being very config heavy. Mm-hmm. And Kubi is very config light. It makes a lot of intelligent default choices for you like you might expect as a Rails dev. So um, there's a single config file. You can put your your config in there and all your config really is is just a couple of credentials. So, you know, I want to deploy to DigitalOcean or Linode or e, uh, AKS Azure's Kubernetes offering. Any of those we have plugin <laughs> providers for those things. So you configure those, you tell it where you want to push your Docker image and then you run a few commands. And next thing you know, your app is online and being served and conserve traffic. So, so yeah, that's, that's Kubi in a nutshell. Nice.
0: Yeah. I mean this is the thing that's kind of hung me up is that so I like running my app in a Docker container locally I mean it's really convenient because I don't have to go and like sandbox crap or use a gem set for RVM or anything like that right I just hey install the stuff I need okay done right oh I need a different version of Ruby now okay redeploy this sucker on the other image right it's Mm -hmm. really convenient locally but then I started looking at Kubernetes right because I've been hosting on DigitalOcean forever. And I was thinking, okay, well, now I've got top end devs. I'm also incidentally using the same code base for podcast playbook, right? And so it's got an admin system that I've put on a separate server from the main site that hosts all the courses and stuff for people. And then I've got some other stuff going on with like Redis and PostgreSQL and things like that. And I'm using kind of their cloud database hosting for that. But, you know, eventually I'm going to have to scale it, or at least I'm hoping eventually I'll have to scale it, right? And so then I'm going to need a load balancer, and I'm going to need more than one server running this stuff. And so I was thinking, oh, cool, I'll just, you know, I'll figure out Kubernetes and try and and use it. And the the learning curve was so overwhelming that I was just like, you know, maybe I'll just stick this on VPS's for right now. Yeah. And then hopefully when I have that problem, I'll also have budget to hire somebody who really can do this for me. <laughs> and so yeah. that that's where this appeals to me, right? Is it's like, okay, well, now I can put this on Docker containers. I can use some kind of Docker container or container registry. And then hopefully I can I can do this on my own and be my own IT guy for a little longer before I have to hire somebody to manage all this stuff. And I'm assuming too, at some scale, you're going to want somebody that just does all the monitoring and management stuff. For now, it's just me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, no. I mean, that's really I think an important like you know point to make that web development and building websites, putting them online, can be a very specialized job, right? Like you talk about hiring, you know, an ops person. That's really how a lot of companies are organized. There's, you know, the, the devs who work on the actual features. And then there are ops people who make sure that the website's up and or, or even you know, another job title that's kind of common these days is site reliability engineer. So they're responsible for making sure yeah. the site's up all the time. And you know, and there there can sometimes be you know maybe a contentious relationship between the devs and the ops people. And that's I think really why DevOps became a thing, right? So now we've got people who do both Dev and Ops, um, or or do Dev as part of Ops, and so that mm-hmm. there's a, a lot more crossover there but i want to also call out how how right you are about the the steep learning curve of a lot of these ops tools like not even just kubernetes but a lot of ops tools are are really complicated oh, yeah. they're geared much more toward you know someone who does it full time someone who used to be a network or sysadmin you know who is like very familiar with firewall rules and i mean you know networking in general and and that's really my, in my experience not the average rails dev most average rails devs are, are slinging code in Ruby and writing features. And, you know, they're, they're great at doing that stuff. When it comes to the ops side, well, there's a lot less confidence they have there that, that what they're doing is the right thing. And a lot of times, you know, they, they open up security holes. And they don't mean to because they don't understand the tooling. And so what I started to realize is that that most devs would rather not have to care about ops at all. They want to care about it exactly 0% of the time. And there are great tools out there. I mean, you have the, the opportunity as a, as a dev to use a bunch of different deployment solutions. It's not like the Rails world or, or even the web development world is really lacking tools in this regard. Like, you can really get as, as deep or as shallow as you want. You could use Heroku, which is a phenomenal hosting platform, um, yeah. maybe not in the recent couple of years, but Uh, recent couple of months, but, uh, but certainly one of the most popular ones for Rails devs. It's so easy. Just get push. And next thing you know, your app's online. They do all of the networking and database management for you. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And you can, you can use plastic beanstalk. You could use render. Uh, there's Mm -hmm. so many options. And, but I think that there's, there's also a lot to be said for managing some of this on your own. Because, you know, I come from the world of of Capistrano and, you know, copying PHP files up to an FTP server. And there's just, there's nothing simpler maybe than Git push, but there's also, maybe the one step slightly less less complicated even than that is just copying some files up to a server, right? And that's essentially what Capistrano is doing. It just takes some files, it copies them up, maybe it clones your repository, you know, and then runs your app, you know, using system control or whatever. And there's a lot to be said for having sort of that level of simplicity or that level of control over your environment. You know, when Capistrano's, it's just a, it's just a Ruby script and you have a bare metal server up somewhere or a VPS you can put stuff onto. I, I really, as a developer, I kind of miss that. Like I don't want to have to, you know, depend on render or depend on, you know, ECS or any of these platforms. I want to be able to like have this awesome experience and, and control that I get with Capistrano, but still have the power of something like you know kubernetes or docker swarm or any of these orchestration tools mm-hmm. so and, and in my opinion you know too like most of the most of, of of like these orchestration tools like docker swarm like kubernetes are much too complicated for the average person and like i said most devs don't want to think about those things they want to think a layer up from the stack but maybe not as high as render or heroku right so what I really want out of Kubi is to be as flexible and as, you know, developer friendly as Capistrano, but, um, you know, there's no vendor lock in with it. It's just a tool that you run on your machine. It's not anything more than that. You know, there's no hosted option. There's no vendor lock in. It's all open source and, and, uh, you know, usable as, as just an average dev.
0: So I want to speak to some of this because, so I was using DigitalOcean's app platform for a while mm-hmm. to host top end devs and I started hearing from people that it would inexplicably go out like my Mm. my my website would and so i'd go look and i'd get this weird error from DigitalOcean, and i kept sending them support requests and they're good about answering them but nobody could figure out why my app would just randomly not Mm. work and and it wasn't an it wasn't an error from my side it was an error on their system and so i moved everything over to Capistrano and Mm -hmm. a server on one of their droplets. If you're not familiar with droplets, that's DigitalOcean's VPS uh, option. So I set everything up there and, you know, Capistrano, it, it works just like I expect it to because I've used it for years. The problem I had was figuring out, okay, I've got this server that I need to run Puma and, you know, I want to use Puma, you know, proxy behind Nginx and blah, blah, blah. And it works terrific on Mm -hmm. my local machine, but I had to figure out how to make it a system start, restart service and provide a socket to NGINX. And there wasn't good documentation out there for how to put that configuration file onto the server Mm -hmm. so that Puma would actually just start up on its own. And then when I wanted to restart it, I could just tell the system control system to restart the Puma service. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I think I still have a bruise on my head from like three, four, five weeks ago when I did this, because I banged my head against the wall for like three days straight trying to get it up. And then once I had it up, then it was like, well, flip, I'm copying this file over to the any other server I have to set up for podcast playbook. And then the other issue I ran into was that I had to do the same thing for Sidekick. And it wasn't, identical, right? It wasn't identical to setting up the Puma service. And so I had to go in there and fiddle with it until I set it up. And even now, I still don't know if it's running optimally. I just know that it works. And so we talk about Capistrano being kind of a level simpler or a level more complicated than uh, Git push. And that's true after you have the server set up. And all of the, okay, and I also needed to do all of the Rails stuff. And so I need all the dependencies there. And, okay, I added a new dependency, and so now I have to go onto the server and install the C library that it relies on. And so I had to jump through all those hoops. Yeah, now when I need to deploy, I just cap production deploy, right? And it just goes. And even if I add a new gem, 99% of the gems I'm using are straight up Ruby, and so there's no dependency that I'm missing. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was a giant hassle to set it up. And so that's the other thing, is, is if there was some kind of, I mean, cause the containers just work. I just pull down a Ruby container that's designed to run Rails and I'm basically done. Right. And so that, that's the appeal that it has for me is, yeah, I like the containers. I like the simplicity, but it's, it's a headache and I'd like to be yeah. able to set up triggers so that, yeah, when I do a get push, it goes, Oh, do you want to deploy this? And I say, yes. And then it just deploys it or I don't push to the production branch until I'm ready to deploy or something like that because the, Digitalocean app platform actually worked that way I pushed on the production branch and then it would automatically pull it down and deploy it
1: absolutely yeah I, I think a lot of what you're describing is the pain that I also have gone through with with Capistrano um, like specifically the problem where <laughs> so I gave a RailsConf talk about about Kube and, and mentioned and like something made it online to YouTube a couple weeks ago and one of the comments under the video was somebody saying yeah Capistrano is great But it will fail the first 19 times you try to run it Mm -hmm. because you haven't gotten everything figured out yet. And that's absolutely right. Like there's, once you've got it figured out, it's great. It's smooth sailing. It works really well. But, you know, getting to that point, and I feel like I had to do that every single time I made a new app. I had to go deploy it somewhere and like some weird thing was wrong, you know, like the version of CentOS or whatever that I was using you know, didn't support installing the the GCC compiler version that I needed. In fact, that's actually something that happened to us at Lumos. We had this old Cron server that used to, it was all provisioned with Chef, I think. And there were some scripts on there that were supposed to run every day that would handle like our billing reconciliation. And
0: I and, loved uh, Chef until I didn't anymore. Yeah, well, and,
1: and Chef, is, Chef is great. It's just like, you know, Chef suffers from the same problems that you suffer from with Capistrano, right? Like it needs to go into a server, and install things, but if the environment isn't exactly what it expects, it'll just blow up. Yep. Right. So what, uh, what happened to us, we had this old app cron server that nobody wanted to move or migrate or touch because it was, it handled all our billing reconciliation. And so one day one of our, we had this bug. Like we had fortunately some monitoring on there and that server, the billing stuff started to fail. And we were like, that's weird. What happened? And it turns out that one of our engineers had upgraded the Rails app to Ruby 2.6 which introduced the new safe navigation operator. And so that code is the same code that was used on the AppCron servers. So everything worked fine in production because we upgraded the production servers to 2.6, but nobody thought to upgrade the AppCron server to 2.6. And so when the billing reconciliation code ran, there was a safe navigation in that code that stopped working. It was literally a syntax error on Ruby 2.5, which is what this old server was running, Mm-hmm. and so we were like oh dang it okay i guess we got to go in and upgrade the server so we went to upgrade the server but we couldn't install 2.6 because it depended like the the gcc that was on that system was too old and so we were like okay let's upgrade gcc there was no package available for that centos version so we're like okay well let's install it manually and that also failed for some reason so we're stuck with this <laughs> yak shave where we like you yeah. couldn't upgrade CentOS because upgrading CentOS would mean that we'd have to go and re-provision the AMI or the the Amazon instance for this, which is the whole point. of We didn't want to do that in the first place because this is why I don't use Passenger over, anymore right?
0: because it's the same thing—you have to go to deploy nginx by hand to make Passenger happy. To, yep. Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. You you just get stuck in this totally hellish cycle of like, yeah, not being able to do because You want to upgrade all of these things that depend on each yep. other, right? So that's a lot of the pain that Docker solved, right? It was like. You know, 100%. you don't need to worry about what the operating system has installed. You just put everything you need into this image, and then that can be, you know, run anywhere.
0: Well, the other thing is, is that the build artifact that you create with Docker, like I, you know, I have Docker installed on my Mac, but if anybody else has Docker, right, with the with anywhere close to the same capabilities, and I tend to keep mine updated, so it'll run on the latest version of Docker, Docker mm-hmm. Desktop. They have they have a working artifact, right? I don't have to go tell them, go install all this crap on your computer. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Right, like whenever I get a new Mac and I'm trying to install like Nokogiri, I always have to go through the hell of trying to figure mm-hmm. out libxslt and this other, Unfortunately, yeah. it's just a lot of brew installs. What are those mostly... flags? Yeah. Right, what are the flags? Exactly, like <laughs> what are the flags? Like SQLite yeah. sometimes has problems, but in if you just use that pre-built like, you know, Rails, or I think it's a Ruby Docker image, yeah. it has all of that stuff installed, so literally like gem install Nokogiri like just works. Like you don't yep. have to ever like mess around with that stuff anymore. So yeah, yeah that's definitely
0: the, the other one it. that gets me is the Postgres app, mm-hmm. and then it's oh what what's the magic path to yeah to get the yeah. PG gem to play nicely with it anyway?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And then I don't have right. the right version of Postgres installed in it, so now I got yeah.
1: Anyway. Yeah, it's such a massive <laughs> pain, and that that's like how like a lot of the. I don't know, the a lot of the friction that I used to encounter yeah. with real, with Rails development, like even like trying to get a new, like junior person set up with a Rails app. I mean, I worked at Twitter back when Twitter was still using Ruby and like every time somebody would come onto the team, we would have to spend like three hours getting their laptop mm-hmm. set up because there so many obnoxious yep. compile errors and whatnot, you know? So yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that a lot of the problems that that, that used to happen there have been solved by Docker.
0: Yeah. One, one question that I have. I'm sorry, Valentino. I feel like I'm just hogging the mic. Um, I get to it. I have lists going here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> so, so one thing that I'm curious about, though, is like I'm using Docker Compose on my machine. Mm. And I know that there are sort of client-side versions of Kubernetes that you can run on your mm. Mac or whatever. So would this work there, too, so I can test out the whole the whole ball of wax? Or Yeah, for sure.
1: So let me let me step back real fast and just make sure that i've said this so that it's it's sort of loaded into our to our brains here kubernetes works with ima- docker images not not necessarily docker images but images built with docker or a docker adjacent tool there's lots of okay. other tools that mm-hmm. also build images and so that's what kubernetes does it takes an image and then will run it for you and make sure the networking is connected. like you know if you want to connect to a mysql running in the same cluster you can do that because the networking is all set up for you so that's what those two tools are doing, um, and that's what also what Kubi does. It'll build an image out of your Rails app and install all the right packages and whatnot, and then we'll we'll push that to a registry, Docker registry, where you push all of your images, and then it'll run, you know, when you start your app and you deploy it, the Kubernetes cluster will pull down those images and run them. So, okay, so think we're on the same page there.
0: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So can I run this locally? Oh, right.
1: Yes. Okay. So you all of that stuff can run locally because the the, the registry and Kubernetes, all of that, is runnable anywhere really, so a server or your laptop. Kubi has a a series of of plugins called providers that will let you deploy to DigitalOcean or Linode. And there's also one that deploys to or uses this tool called Kind. And Kind is like a a cluster that can run inside your locally running Docker desktop. So you would just use the Kind provider and then deploy to, you know, to to Kind essentially and then that would just run on your machine. You could look, Mm -hmm. you know, hit the website localhost three thousand like you would normally do.
0: I mean, it all sounds great to me. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that.
2: <laughs> I mean, I got to jump in here. I mean, I'm torn. Yeah. And from a certain point in a Ruby app or Rails app, I could totally see the allure of Kubernetes and Docker and, and all that. My, my problem is more of like the inf- the low to middle tier apps, right? Like that needs to change and don't need structure overhead. Uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that yeah. probably isn't the most use case because of the bohemists that are out there now. But I, I feel like there's still a huge number of people where maybe that problem of maybe Kubernetes, maybe Overkill, and maybe Kubi solves that, mitigating some of that overhead. I was playing with Kubi, the great right, Doku, which y- you can run the same Roku. Mm-hmm. And it's still hard to beat that. In <laughs> same way, and be able to just get, you know, mm-hmm. get pushed Doku the same yeah. way you would Her- mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, ha- having run a Doku server before this morning, and it was it worked really well, I was able to deploy to Linode, you know, it was great. But it's still, yeah. like you mentioned, Heroku, yeah. you know, Git totally. Heroku. There's an open source version of that, where, Like, upgrading <laughs> is t- terribly painful. Mm-hmm. So sure. I definitely see the alert of having something more manageable in Kubernetes to make that transition easier, right? Like, how, how does the upgrade process work for Kubernetes? <laughs>
1: so you have actually hit on like the most difficult part of, <laughs> of Kubernetes. <laughs> I wish that. So yes, so so Kubernetes, unfortunately, <laughs> is very difficult to upgrade, mostly because they, they'll you know the APIs and whatnot will change. And when I mean when I say APIs, I mean you'll you'll apply these resources to the cluster. It's all YAML config, right? Kubi, for the most part, hides all that from you. You don't have to actually mess with that YAML config. But what it's doing behind the scenes is building up this large amount of YAML and then shoving it onto the into the cluster and saying, you know, do what I want you to do with this YAML. You know, set up my networking and whatnot. What usually happens with a, a, a cluster, though, is that it gets into a, a particular state, and that state can be state that you created, you know, that could be created, or a state that an operator creates, so an operator being a, a special... Program running inside your cluster that will respond to requests to, for example, create a database. Uh, in our case, a Cockroach database or Postgres. And so the, there's some implicit state there too. And when it comes to upgrading the cluster, sometimes those upgrades work flawlessly because they try not to break anything between the ne- from the previous minor version to the next one. However, in my experience, you know there have been some pretty rough upgrades. So one nineteen to one twenty was pretty rough because they They move the ingress controller or the ingress API to a different namespace, and so Linode, for example, (laughs) will automatically upgrade. Like if they'll give you an an email, they'll say, "Hey, we are no longer we're going to deprecate support for this previous version that you're currently using. You need to go in and upgrade. And if you don't, we'll like force upgrade your cluster at this particular date, which is not great." And you know, it can be kind of scary. But they I think they have to do that because if they don't, they'll end up, you know, supporting these super old versions of all this stuff. But the, and those upgrades, I mean, this just happened to my, my dad's construction company website. They they force upgraded his to the latest version and it just the whole thing went down. You know, like it was just not I got this email from the Uptime Robot and it was like, Your your site's down <laughs> because they force upgraded you. So that story in, in Kubernetes is not very good right now. And correspondingly that story is totally non-existent in kubi and i that's one of the things that i really would like to have a better answer for and we don't currently have a good answer for it what most people do in the in the kubernetes world even without kubi is they'll create a new cluster migrate everything to it sort of manually and then deploy to that you know from then on and they'll just go delete the old cluster you know like that's really not viable most of the time um (laughs) So, you know, like the, and Kubernetes is, is pretty mature, but it's also, you know, there are some aspects of it like this that are pretty amateur, not amateur. That's the word pretty immature, I suppose. So, so yeah, that's why it's so funny you asked it as the first question, because it's like, that's not a great, not a great experience on a great story right now. And I would love it to be better. I, I, I hope that we'll be able to come up with something.
2: Yeah. I guess what I was getting at, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to like. <laughs> <laughs> Call yeah, you know, so surface, nice. the biggest pain point. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. what I was getting at—still, I'm gonna poke you in the eye. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm mean, gonna get sold. I mean, more of what I was getting at is, uh, yeah, I'm on the Kubernetes as a, the de facto deployment service, right? If we want to make like active deployment, right? Like, should it be on Kubernetes and why? Yeah, it,
0: right. That's an interesting question, though.
2: It is. Cause I feel like if we have active deployment,
0: just like we have what active storage and you can choose cloud storage or local storage, you've mm-hmm. got the active job and you can pick like sidekick or rescue or delay job or any of those. Yeah. It seems like if we had active deployment. You, it would make sense to say, you know, Kubernetes or VPS or, right. right I see or, or, or I like that as an option. Right. So then it could mm-hmm. adapt onto a Kubi or adapt onto. Something a little less painful setup than Kubernetes. I don't know for sure.
1: I think that's also a really good question, or a really good point to make. Like, why Kubernetes? You know, why? Like, because I, I personally think that Kubernetes is the right target for something like active deployment. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because you know your app is never just your app. Your app is mm-hmm. obviously your app and your code that that you know you have in your app. But there's also a bunch of external stuff. So I mentioned before sidekick workers um, database redis elastic whatever there's also there's always a bunch of sort of peripheral stuff on the outside of your app if if all you needed to do was put your code on a server and and say puma run or you know bundle exec mm-hmm. rail server then you know this would be a totally uh, kubernetes would be a terrible choice because it's way more complex than you need for something like that but because there's all these external peripheral services that you need to access, or not even, I want to say services, processes that you need to also run and manage, doing all of that with Capistrano is is doable. Doing all that with any other platform is absolutely doable. But Kubernetes makes that just a lot more, a lot easier. And, And the way I talked about this in the RailsConf talk was, if you are using Capistrano, then you're, the primitive that you're working with is just a server somewhere. Capistrano uses SSH mm-hmm. con- to connect to your server. All that it has to work with is what you've given it on that server. So that server may or may not have system control. That server may or may not, you know, be running mm-hmm. AMD processors or, you know, x86 processors versus M1 processors, right? So there's, uh, it may not even have an internet connection. We don't, it's, it's just, you know, you're, you're, you're given this platform to run on, but all it is is a server that has some Software running on it, you don't even know or control what that is. So, from a tooling perspective, like as a developer, you know a lot more about the server than Capistrano does. You know that it's running this version of Ubuntu. You know it's got these tools to installed, but Capistrano doesn't know that stuff. You have to basically tell it what what to do, and it can kind of it can kind of rely on certain tools existing. Like there has to be an SSH daemon running, of course. Mm-hmm. But you know that's about all that it knows about your server. So, from a like a Capistrano author's perspective, all that they can really do. Is let you run commands and you have to sort of specify what those commands are to a large degree. When it comes to Kubernetes, however, you have a much larger, much richer API that you can write code against. You can guarantee, you can, for example, be totally confident that your server or that your platform can run Docker images. You can be totally confident that the networking between pods and pods, by the way, are just running containers. You can be sure that that's something that will just work, right? You don't have to go and configure that stuff. Well, you have to configure it, but you can, you can get, you guarantee that it's there and that you can use it. So you have a much larger surface area of APIs to, to contact, to access and to, to do stuff with. Obviously, there are other tools that will do this, other platforms that will do this as well, but most of them are proprietary, right? So you could use render, but render's proprietary system, you know, would mean that you'd have to code specifically to render's APIs. Kubernetes is running, you know, is, is, is an open source project. A lot of these providers, these, these hosting providers like DigitalOcean will let you stand a Kubernetes cluster up. And that cluster is going to look exactly like a cluster that Lino would give you. So it makes it a much better target than just a bare metal server because of the richness and because it's going to be the same pretty much everywhere that, that something like Active Deployment could target. Because, because it's so rich, that means that KUBI can, for example, stand up a database for you it can stand up a series of, set uh, of a Redis for you, and it can, you know, use a, a plugin to stand up another pause, set of pods that will be your sidekick workers. So th- without having to do really much of anything besides, like, as a, as a person who is going to be using Kuby, go to a provider like Digilotion and say, get me a cluster, mm-hmm. get that cluster's ID, paste it into your config, and then you're off to the races. Like, there's no additional messing around that you have to do, right? And we are able to do that because it's targeting Kubernetes and because Kubernetes is such a rich platform and rich API.
2: So let's say that Kubi starts to become the de facto standard, right? And people are like building on top of this. Like, do you foresee like kind of Rails triggers into that process where say like, you know, the typical Sidekick installation is, you know, gem install Sidekick and then have some configuration somewhere that says where Redis is. I mean, is is QB set up to be able to like just say, okay, I want Sidekick and it will automatically do that for your Rails app or where does that divide lay now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So QV supports a plugin architecture so that's how the providers work like DigitalOcean, Lino, they're just gems that you would add to your gem file. And you require those at the top of your your kuby config, and then in your config you can say provider Digital ocean, provider Linode. By the same token, you can also install like the kuby sidekick gem, require that, and then add plugin sidekick. And there's some config that you need to add, but that's documented in the gem, mm-hmm. the gem's readme. So you know your your config initializers is sidekick.rb. There's a, a basically a block of code that you can just copy paste uh, from the documentation, and that will then uh, when your app starts and starts to you know shove jobs. Into into your, your queue, it'll it'll just communicate directly with Redis automatically, and there's there's no additional configuration besides that that you need to do. So so yes, there is <laughs> to answer your question. Yes, there is a paved path specifically for Sidekick, and there could be. I mean, you could imagine how much how how far you could take that, right? You could have a a paved path for Elasticsearch and for everything else if you wanted to. Also,
2: yeah, that's cool. I mean, one of my biggest gripes currently is I experiment a ton. And I imagine like lots of people that, mm. you know, are, are working with Rails are experimenting a ton because there's so much new that changes and so much new to explore as you like start diving in more. You know, how how easy is it to say, like, let's say I have like a Linode machine or such, just as many apps as I want to it. Is it, Kubi set mm. up for that kind of setup? Or is it more of geared toward mm. a multi-node setup?
1: Yeah, interesting. So you I think there might be two questions there. So like, if you have some, a bare metal server there.
2: Yeah, that's the and, idea. Like what
1: you would normally deploy with Capistrano too. Is that the idea? Yeah, right. So, so because Kube requires you to have a Kubernetes cluster, you would need to be running a cluster on that node. But there are like kind or kube ADM. There are ways to to do that on a bare metal server. There would have to be, you have to do some work on your own to, to get that to work, but uh, it's definitely possible. And then the other thing too that, that, uh, Kubernetes offers is namespacing. So, you know, when you deploy an app using Kubi, it will create a namespace for it and all of the, the, the pods, so the, the app and the psychic workers and all of that are deployed into that namespace. And you could then, you know, deploy another app into that same cluster, which would just choose a different namespace. And so they'd be isolated from each other in that regard. That was, so yeah, you could deploy as many apps so you to it.
0: Yeah. Because what I'm looking at, and so the, this is interesting, right? I mentioned that I'm running the same code base for both top-end devs and podcast playbook. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I deploy, I do cap production deploy and it deploys it to top end devs. It does not deploy it to podcast playbook. And the reason is, is because top end devs is getting more usage and I want to test bed the stuff before I push it to the other system. And so I'm imagining, yeah, that I might, or the other thing is, is it's a platform that I also imagine other people may want to use at some point. And so (laughs) I'm liking the idea that, hey, you know, when I'm ready to have it deployed globally, right, it just deploys to all of the namespaces. But at the same right, time, absolutely. if I wanted to go to just one app as kind of the the testbed, then I can do that. And it, it it's simple enough to do, instead of having to have mm-hmm. a podcast playbook environment config for the deploy and a mm-hmm. production deploy file for the config, right? Yeah, for sure.
1: So, yeah, I mean, you could always do like the multi-tenant concept i guess but the other solution like you mentioned is just deploy to deploy to like different clusters um, and and actually... is
0: such a mess i've never <laughs> seen it done where people don't spend years trying to fix it
1: yeah for sure it's it's nice and and you know especially if you want to like truly like isolate the data from yeah you know, between between customers than having a, another instance
0: <laughs> which is, i definitely is, like, do go. yeah yeah for sure yeah so
1: like kubi actually supports Um, different environments and so what you could do is potentially like have you know a bunch of environments configured that uh, that you could deploy to individually
0: is there a way of sharing sort of global config or global information this goes back to Mm -hmm. valentino mentioning like you have to tell it where the redis server is you have to tell it where the postgres server is and stuff like that right so i stick that in in environment variables but then i send the same environment variable to all of the things right so they can all talk to the things so yes. is, is there some kind of secrets management that goes into Kubernetes like that?
1: There's, well, so, so first of all, you can, you can specify that like shared configuration. So if you have a bunch of environments in your Kubi mm-hmm. config, you can have a shared, like it's just a lambda, essentially like it's instance exact right. into each environment, um, cause it's a okay. DSL. So you can, you can have shared config. Um, in terms of secrets, yeah, Kubernetes does have. Like probably the worst secret management. It's and and this I say this with a bit potentially love in my voice here, but it's um what what like there's a, a specific like object type in the the Kate's API called secret, but all that it does is take your secrets and like base sixty four encode them. So like they're not oh I feel really better now. At all. Right. I know. <laughs> so, you know, the only, like, if you have access to the cluster, then all you need to do is copy that string and like run basic support decode and you can see the secret. Right. There are certain providers will, will like hook into that. Yeah. So like AWS, for example, has their KMS service or key management service and you can tell it to automatically encrypt your secrets. Like when they go into the Kubernetes API, it'll just automatically go and encrypt those for you. Um, and the same thing is, is true. I'm sure of other platforms. Kubi itself, like, doesn't do any additional encryption. I guess we could okay. add that feature, but it doesn't do any additional encryption currently. It will, one thing that is kind of nice, though, is as opposed to, like, it won't, like, Kubernetes will, or Kubi, rather, will not turn your credentials into the secrets. It keeps your credential, like, you know, your, your credential, your crypto credential store in Rails. It uses that, to, like, it encourages you to store like, all your credentials in there. And those are encrypted, right. you know, using a much better algorithm than base64. And so, as opposed to like turning that into a secret, which would then get c four encoded, it instead just you know you copy that file up with your app, like you you know like you would normally do with right. Capistrano or anything else, and then you know you just provide that Rails master key, yep. and as long as the Rails master key is provided, the Rails will just look at that file and open it like it would normally do in development. So it doesn't it doesn't try to do any like s- secrets decoding and stuffing into a secret. It just like copies that file up and then you provide the master key and it uses the the key to unlock it all.
0: Yeah, the reason I asked is cuz that's the other issue I've had with running the same code base in multiple places is yeah, mm-hmm. the the database strings and stuff like that, they right. all have to be managed differently and putting that all into that in the secrets encrypt file in rails mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it it started to get to be kind of a headache. And right. then I was using the same master key everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is not ideal. So Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Anyway.
1: One thing I will say actually about database like passwords and usernames and stuff. I mean specifically passwords, those are the secrets the secret part of connecting to a database. Kubi mm-hmm. be actually because it's using I mean Postgres could do this too, but we actually might say we, the pro- the project, I wrote the project or sort of modified it so that it uses Cockroach DB now, which is like a lot more mm-hmm. cloud native. And what I mean by that is it, it's sort of more designed to run in an environment like Kubernetes as opposed to Postgres, which you're going to have to massage to get to do that. Mm-hmm. And because Cockroach has like wire compatibility with Postgres, for the most part, it's a drop-in replacement for Postgres. There are some slight changes, but, but both those those databases support connecting over SSL or over TLS. And so um, you can use a password if you want to, but what Kubi will do by default is generate a series of, of certificates for you. And then when you connect to the database, it's all over SSL and there is no password. Oh, right. Yeah, so you don't even have to worry about having a password. If, if, if Kubi manages your database, it just automatically will connect and, and work via SSL or via TLS certificates.
0: That makes sense. So you just tell Cockroach, hey, these certificates are okay.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, like the Cockroach server has the private key. But Mm -hmm. the, like, Rails app only has the public key, for example, and it will encrypt that, send it to the server, and the server decrypts it and runs the query and returns it. Cool. Yeah.
2: I've got a couple follow-up questions. I was going to (laughs) say, I was going to let Valentino
0: (laughs) get a few more in here.
2: So two other things, just kind of looking at, like, okay, putting KUBI in use, right? Like, I guess I have, like, kind of a three-part question is, like, what are some of the things that you've seen... Kubi kind of solve for you, right? That maybe doing it a different way hasn't. Another is kind of building on that is like, how does like, let's say you have a completely separate team devoted to DevOps or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Does the Kubi configuration kind of conflict with people running manual commands in Cube Control or something like that? Mm. How is that mm-hmm. managed? And I guess the last one is related to your plugins, which are really cool. Are there third-party plugins? How, how does that kind of system work? And are, are, do you have plans to like open that up to a more like kubi.install kind of setup?
1: Yeah, yeah, super good questions. So yeah, what does it solve is a, is a good way to, I guess, well, I, I wrote them all down here, so I'll start with that one. For me, so like, as far as I know, there's only two apps <laughs> that are currently using kubi right now. One is my dad's construction website. Shout out to masterbuilderconstruction.com. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, and, you know, that, that actually started life as a PHP app and I converted to Rails because I needed a test bed to, it really exists only because I needed a test bed to like, you know, run Kubi stuff with. The other one is the storybook that, cert, like, so I work on the design infrastructure team or design engineering team at GitHub. And we have, we work on Primer, this design system and, uh, Primer view components specifically. And, uh, those view components, there's a storybook, which is like this cool design tool that you can use mm-hmm. to like preview your, your components and whatnot. So it uses a it uses a Rails app to, to render the components and then it will show them you know in your UI, and so that's also deployed with Kubi into Azure uh, Kubernetes Service. So there's two apps that use it, and for me, it, what it really solves is just like I I just went I spent so long like I've you know stood up numerous Rails apps in my career uh, either professionally or just on the side, and like every time I do that, I had to reach for something like Capistrano or I had to use Heroku, and uh, you know there's just limitations to each of those approaches. Like I told, we talked about Capistrano yeah. at length. And, and Heroku is phenomenal, but they sort of limit you to, I think, 10 individual web apps on their free tier. So if you wanted to go and launch that 11th app, you'd have to kick one out before you could do that. Otherwise you'll end up spending money. And I didn't want to spend money on it, which is funny. Cause like with Kubernetes, like, you know, there's no way to not spend money on that. So I mean, what I was looking for was a way to you know, deploy something that I had more control over, but that I wouldn't break the bank to, to stand up, you know, like Heroku can get really expensive. Oh, if, yeah. even if you just do a couple of really basic, like even if you want just a few more database rows, you know, because I think it limits you to 100,000 rows or something. Even if you want 100,001 rows, you still have to pay. Like it's a, it's a pretty, st- like it goes up really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that I could actually get basically more freedom by spending the same amount of money. So you can run, I think a on Linode right now, my dad's website is hosted for like about $25 a month, you know, and it's just one node and there's a load balancer and it's all it all works really well with Kubi. And there's no sort of like, I don't have to worry about the additional overhead of paying if I have to. I'm I'm never going to have 100,000 rows in that database, but if I do, I don't have to go and like, you know, worry about like, Mm. you know, increasing my account limits or whatever. I can just like increase the size of the disk that it's on and be done. Right. Yeah. So it solves, it solves those problems. Like, I just, and I, what I'm hoping is that it will eventually become. Because I think that like a lot, like my real goal behind this is not so much to stand up my dad's database or whatever, or my dad's website. My real goal is to prevent people from getting to that point in their Rails journey and realizing that they either have to spend money or have to struggle setting up Capistrano or whatever, you know, or, or have to bump another app off their. You know, free tier in, in Heroku. I want these developers that they're coming up in, in Rails and coming up in Ruby to not get stuck at that step where they have no chance and no options to deploy something or, or that Rails doesn't provide for them, right? Um, so that's what I want Kubi to be is this plugin system and this, this thing that you can just plug into your app and suddenly you're like off to the races, right? So, so yeah, that's, that's like the major goal is to make sure we don't lose companies and juniors and stuff at the step where they like make their app and then they can't deploy it. Okay, and then your next question was: Does Kube's config like supersede kube control commands? Like, what if you run a command with kube control, and then that like somehow you know conflicts with your 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 kube config? That's a good question. I mean, you can definitely do that, right You could go in and, for example, mess with the config. The nice thing about Kubernetes is that there's not like you you can go and mess with that config manually. You can go and apply, for example, a different YAML file or editor resource directly in your in your you know your editor that you could that, that your kubectl control command could start up for you and then save it back and then mess things up. Totally true. One thing that's nice about about Kubernetes, though is that it's sort of if you wanted to go and sort of fix that, or if you wanted to like you've made a mistake, you could simply deploy with kubie again. And it would replace the config that you just edited with the one that, that could be generated. And so that would hopefully fix any of the problems that, that you, that you introduced by manually editing things. So there's, there's sort of, it, that's kind of a double edged sword though, right? Cause you have like this, it's really just clobbering all the config that you already entered. If you wanted to persist that, if you wanted to make an a change that would persist on multiple deploys, you would need to make that change in the Kube config. Right. And Kubi uses this other project called Kube DSL. To, to generate Kubernetes resources. And so you can, there's really no part of that deploy process that you can't monkey with if you want to. I had to do a lot of that actually for the for the, the primer storybook. So yeah, so I, w- I would recommend that you not run, you know, random kube control commands that are making changes to your resources and instead go in and modify your kubernetes config to, to tweak whatever you want so that it's a persistent change that you're making.
0: Yeah, but that was the same um, yeah. story with things like Chef and crap like that too is, you know, it yes. would generate your config files and then basically just stick them on the server, and it wouldn't even check to see if something was there before.
1: Exactly, that's totally right. So, and it could really devastate things if you're not like if it was making changes that you know you weren't expecting or that weren't codified somewhere, you could really get yeah. in big trouble. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and then to answer your last question, um, third-party plugins. So right now, there's one third-party plugin. So any, anybody can write a plugin. I have documentation for that on the. And getkubi.io, you can make your own, your own plugins. There's one that I know that, so all of the plugins except one have been written by me. They're in the Getkubi organization. Yeah. But, uh, there was a great article published by the Evil Martians, uh, Vladimir Demetyev, where he talked about deploying an app with Kubi and he made some really interesting suggestions as part of that article. And, um, so I, and I think the Evil Martians are the guys behind AnyCable and they wanted to get AnyCable working with Kubi. So they wrote a plugin for it that you can. I think it's just evil Martian slash Kubia dash Any Cable, and if you add that to your Kube config, it'll automatically stand up like the Any Cable Go service and and just wires everything up for you. So it's a it's a really good example of oh, like cool. being able to take something that would normally have taken like a lot of effort to get running, and you can just drop a plugin in and just it
2: just works, right? I'm gonna have that's great. Yeah, it was fun to see that happen. Play with that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, how it's again? That's really because of the power of the Kubernetes platform, like. Imagine trying to do something like that, you know, in Capistrano or even in Heroku, I guess, I, it's all possible, of course, but it would be, I think it's much easier to do I'm
2: getting <laughs> <and include those laughs> platforms. You know, part of me is, I don't know if I'm like, it's the longevity of, of me being, you know, a seasoned developer that I'm just used to the mm. orchestration at this point or some of the, some of these mm. skills that maybe if I was just starting now, I would just overlook because other people do that or there's other tools, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to tell where it's going to go <laughs> is, what I, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, but for sure, it definitely, for sure. I, I really like, uh, the interface of Kubi, like, like mm. as a configuration, it did, it do, did make it feel easier to deploy. I will say, like, cause I similarly have been down that Capistrano path where I have a bare metal server mm-hmm. and I want to, you know, push it and something isn't there, right? That, that it's expecting and you have to yeah. figure out what it is. Sure. That pain just sucks so much time away that if I could yeah. just destroy a cluster and make a new one, <laughs> which even though that's probably not the best thing, uh, <laughs> it still would right. save me time, oh, yeah. you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you know, that, that's actually a really good point. that. There- Like, I think a lot of the DevOps kind of revolution that we went through was realizing, well, I don't want to say revolution. There's been, there have been several stages of DevOps, I think, that we've all sort of experienced. And the first one was like, oh, I can, I can code up a, like, I could write a script, but it's, it could be a Chef script or it could be a bash script that will provision my server for me. And then I can run that on the server every time I create a new server. Oh, that's going to save me so much time. And maybe on the first one it does, but then the second one it's going to blow up and, you know, not something's not quite the same as you remember from before. So that was sort of the first wave. Like we can, we can codify these rules into a script or a chef cookbook or whatever and apply them everywhere. And that was pretty great actually for a long time. What we, I think, discovered though, after that was that it's often a lot better to just have everything be ephemeral, like except your database. Obviously you don't want to lose your data. But, like, you talk about deleting a Kate's cluster and bringing another one back up, you know, that often is just a much easier solution than, like, trying to debug the existing one, you know? And because it's so ephemeral, I could just delete it and make a new one and move on with
2: my life. And, you know, I I even think of it, too, like, stuff that you come back to after years, right? Like, I have all these old apps that I have up that I don't want to upgrade or anything because they're just, (laughs) you know, they're so ancient. And but I was, like, curious, you know, about something that I had worked on and I wanted to just to try and get it up again just see what was working and I couldn't and I was just like well mm-hmm. I just said, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> but if yep. but if I could just <laughs> right. go and like you know create a new cluster and redeploy it pretty easily I feel like that yeah, could take totally. out a barrier. Uh, it's definitely a pain point of mine that I still have.
1: <laughs> yeah, really good point. Like the the bit rot that often like sets in on on these older applications. Yeah, absolutely. And like Docker is the thing that really I think makes that easier. Kubernetes doesn't really you know help you in that. I mean, it would because you could still launch it or deploy it or whatever. But the the Docker image is really what like would save you from that problem.
2: Yeah, but then I'd have to make yeah. a Docker image for those old apps,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: totally. Yeah. Good luck.
1: Yeah, man. Cool. There's actually, I mean, Ruby. So the the Ruby official Ruby Docker image has, I think, versions going all the way back to like 2.2. I want to say maybe even 2.0. So uh, you can
0: go back pretty far in time with those images. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right, well, let's let's do some picks. I, th- I think we've pretty well
2: uh, covered the topic. Yeah. Valentino, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I just came across this article from the the guy that's been working on all the improvements to IRB, was it Stan Lowe? He has this article on from buy buy, buy Bug to Ruby Debug. It's really cool, it outlines kind of all the pain points from buy Bug and kind of what's new and fresh in the new debugger uh, in Ruby. And uh, I just got, it, it's really cool to see all the, the new features that are coming out of there. And my other pick is uh, Keychron. I have this new keyboard, it's wireless. And I haven't had any issues with it. It's mechanical. And I, I don't get keyboards that often. So this was a, a huge, huge win for me. Nice. All right, I'm going to jump in. I usually do a game board pick or game board
0: pick. I, I must be tired. A board game pick. The one I'm going to pick this time is card game. It's called Quiddler. This one's been around for a long, long time. So a lot of people may have played it. Effectively, what you do is you, you have a hand of cards you try and make words out of it when you've put down all the cards in your hand and you know, everybody else kind of gets a shot to put down what they've got and then you tally up the points you get bonus points for having the longest word or the most words right so you can put down two words if you anyway and yeah but that's that's pretty much the game it ranks on board game geek at a, at a 1.43 which means it's on the simpler side i mean i basically told you how to play it so you know, and you just play a number of hands, starting at three cards and going up to however many cards. I like board games because I tend to win them. But, yeah, it's it's a good family game. And so, yeah, I'm going to pick Quiddler. I'm trying to think what else I've got here for picks. I'm ramping things up on the meetup side. So keep an eye out if you go to topendevs.com slash meetups. Or if you scroll down, it should show you all of the events we have coming up. But, yeah, definitely check that out. I'm also thinking about adding a function. We're using Riverside to 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 kind of do the show live or to do the show among us. And I haven't been posting the videos, but it does have a feature where people can join as audience and so you could kind of see us talking. You could see my messy office. And so I'm thinking about putting all of the show's live recordings on there. so if people want to come in and participate in the chat that they can. But yeah, I'm really looking at that for events. Rails Remote Conf is coming up. CFP still open. I'm trying to think of what else I'm going to pick. Gonna pick. Um, my wife and I started watching a new show, and so I'll pick that, and that'll be my last pick. Uh, it's called The Lost Symbol. It's based on Dan Brown's book. It's on Peacock. I remember back in the day, you'd say, it's on Channel 5 at 6 p.m. Not anymore. It's on this streaming service. It's on Peacock. I think my wife picked up the Peacock Plus subscription when she wanted to watch Olympics. And then we held on to it because I wanted to watch Yellowstone. Now we're watching Lost Symbol. They've got a ton of stuff on there just like all the rest of them. But yeah, this one's pretty good. It's based on the book. I haven't read the book in so long. I can't tell you how closely it's sticking to the story. But it's got what's his name? Robert Langdon. And I, I think the characters all have the same names at the very least. So anyway, it's it's been decent. It's not it's not riveting to me like Yellowstone was. Like Yellowstone, I couldn't quit watching it. But it's it's nice to just sit down and watch a show with the wife. And then this has been a good show. So yeah. So I'll pick The Lost Symbol as a pick. All right, Cameron, what are your picks?
1: Well, definitely plus one to Quiddler. That's one I played before. It was pretty fun. Lost Symbols interesting because I feel like that was a they didn't did they make that into a movie at some point like a couple of years ago?
0: I don't Let's think say, so. Get- they did Angels and Demons, and they did. The Da Vinci Code, oh, Da Vinci Code, right? But they haven't done Lost Symbol. Okay, I don't think they did cool. the Lost Symbol. The Lost Symbol, the book, wasn't as good as either the 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 other ones. He's done, yeah, four or five books that right. I've read, mm-hmm. and Angels and Demons and The Da Vinci Code are definitely the be- better books.
1: Yeah, I, I've read all of them as well. It's like one of the only authors that I read anymore. But uh, you know, I've been told that I have poor taste in literature, but I think they're really good. So I was hoping that. Maybe the Lost Symbol book was or series is good too. Um,
0: so. so far, we've watched like three or four episodes. Okay, okay, cool. I might have to check it out.
1: So yeah, my picks are going to be. Um, I just have two picks. One is View Component. So I work on the design engineering team, as I mentioned at GitHub, and uh, one of the projects we work on is the View Component framework. And View Components are really, I would say, awesome way to like clean up your your views, if, uh, especially if you have logic in those views. Mm-hmm. I know that. Um, Joel Hawksley, the creator of View Component, has been on this podcast before and has done numerous talks about it. So at this point, I, am I think addicted probably most to them. people, oh, nice, that's good to hear.
0: I use them yeah, all the time. That's
1: awesome. Yeah, we 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 really there's lots of adoption, and I just you know wanted to to pick it because it's like I think maybe one of the best things to happen to the Rails View layer like maybe ever. And then my last pick is going to be for Apple AirPods. I'm just a huge fan of AirPods. They mm-hmm. work super well. I've dropped them like a billion times and they still work. And they're a little expensive, but they're absolutely worth it, especially the Pro. AirPods. So, you know, if you're looking for a pair of really, I would say, pretty good quality, durable, works automatically with everything I have that's Apple-based, uh, you know, if you want something like that, then definitely give the AirPods a try.
0: Yeah, I haven't tried the AirPod Pro. I've always just gotten the older AirPods. In fact, mine died, and I recently got new ones, and I went and got specifically got the old version of them just because I like them okay. so much. sure. But they, yeah, they stand up well, they yeah, pair with everything, and mm-hmm. it seems like I have to replace them every, like, three or four years and so i mean they hold up really 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 well
1: yeah three or four years for headphones is pretty good i think yeah for like in-ear headphones yeah yeah so cool well thanks guys it's been a real pleasure
0: yeah we'll wrap it up here till next time folks max out bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more